Welcome back to part two of our episode with Nancy Piercy, as we have had a great conversation with her so far. We're going to continue the conversation as we dig deeper into this really, really important topic of sexuality. So Nancy, we're grateful that you've stuck with us. Came across an article, I shared this with you earlier, um, just a very short article from August 2nd um, from Entertainment Weekly. Demi Lovato, someone that Certainly, uh, uh, my teenage girls know who they, they grew up watching her, and uh, she's been very outspoken about her fluidity uh, sexually. And she says, um, she says here in this article. So for me, I'm I'm a I'm such a fluid person. I felt especially last year that my energy was balanced, my masculine and feminine energy, so that when I was faced with the choice of walking into a bathroom and it said women. And men, I didn't notice how often she says feel. I didn't feel like there was a bathroom for me because I didn't feel necessarily like a woman, nor did I necessarily feel like a man. I just felt like a human. That's why I'm now going with they, them. So the article was all about how she's moved from pronouns, from she, her, to they, them. Um, it, here's the point I'm making. The, the feeling part of it all is such an emphasis. Is And that's the point that you're making is, and it occurs to me, if we went through all of life only based on feeling, what a wreck all of life would be. You're right. I mean, my, our, our feelings are all over the map. How can we trust them? How can we know that they can be trusted? And what breaks my heart and what you've seen in, in your years of studying and counseling and teaching and all your research is that you see people feel like I, I want to transition and they do and then get down that road and then feel, Oh wait, what have I done? I don't want, you know, and then, so, so maybe talk just briefly about that. So what are some of the things that some of the stories that you have personally people, not just stories, people you've encountered with their stories of where their feelings have led them? Yeah, it, it is something that uh, I find I have to actually help people to see that their feelings change, right? Feelings can change, and they often do. And so, it just makes sense to treat your body as a reliable marker yep. of your sex and gender. You know, it's just rational. It just makes sense. Um, but your second question about people who trans who detransition. Sure. You know, there's a growing community of detransitioners, and that's people who. Transition to the opposite sex, and then, like you said, said, "Uh oh, I think I just made a terrible mistake." Right. Yeah. And one of my, uh, actually, one of my favorite stories is um, a young woman who transitioned to. Bo- she was a girl. She was a girl who transitioned to boy at age eleven. Mm-hmm. She lived as a trans boy for three years, and then at age fourteen, reclaimed her identity as a girl. And in an interview, she said. The turning point came, and again, the direct quote, the turning point came when I realized it's not conversion therapy to learn to love your body. Mm. And this would have been a great quote in a book called Love Thy Body. Unfortunately, it came out after my book was already published. You just have to make it in the uh, second edition. Yeah, there you yeah. go. <laughs> but it was on a very secular liberal website. So, you know, this is not from a Christian perspective at all. Mm. And she was saying, having been there and having detransitioned, she recognized that the key point was your view of the body. Wow. The, she, uh, the, the goal was to love your body. 
and um, and there's another de- and you find this if you read the detransitioners. There was another young woman um, who had a uh, a blog. She she had transitioned at age fourteen, uh, lived as a trans boy until age nineteen, mm. and. <laughs> and she said, you know, when she when she transitioned, she was celebrated. You know, she was supported. All her friends said, "Oh, wonderful!" And she, mm-hmm. uh, oh, as she put it, all my friends on Tumblr, on Tumblr were ecstatic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, she said, "the the boy me." That's how she put it. The boy me got a lot more affirmation than the girl me <laughs> ever had. Right. So you know, which is by the way, you know, what teenager what teenager can resist that? Sure, you know, you can kind of part of it. You can yeah. see, yeah. you can see why that's appealing to a lot of young people. But then when she detransitioned, she said she lost all her friends. You know, they they all attacked her, they mocked her, they ridiculed, they were vicious. Mm. And so in this interview, she was asked, well, what would you say then to a young girl who's experiencing gender dysphoria? And she said, and she said almost the same words. She said, if I could convey, if I could convince just one young woman to love her body, then all the hostility I've experienced would be worth it. Mm. And I thought, this is so interesting. Even, and you'll see this on secular websites now, by the way. Um, even secular people are starting to say that trans- transgenderism represents body hatred. Mm. That's a term you see now. They'll say transgender ideology is body hatred. And I thought, wow, they're, you know, every, they're really recognizing that. It's, um, this is where I would go beyond where Trevor and Wax, Wax went, because that's, that's true. It's your view of the self that's an issue, but it's actually your view of the body. That's right. That yeah. is... A, I think more That's foundational. That's what's at stake, mm-hmm. right? I Absolutely, think so. yeah. Mm-hmm. Quick pivot here, and then come come back to this final question about how how can we love and and be compassionate while also not compromising truth. But one more little little bit of a rabbit trail, but worth discussing. Um, many will come and come to to you or even to me and say, "What about those who are intersex?" Um. Talk about that. What, and maybe explain what it is first. Yeah, and then, yeah, right. Yeah, and then talk about that. It is the question I get a lot uh, because p- a lot of people think intersex is trans, and uh, intersex is not the same thing as transgender. Mm. Um, transgender people have completely normal physical anatomy. Mm-hmm. Right? Their genes, their gonads, their, their gender, their genitals all line up. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not a physical condition. It's a psychological condition where they feel, like you were saying earlier, they feel right. you know, like maybe they are incongruent with their sexual identity. Right. Whereas intersex people actually do have a physical condition. Mm-hmm. It is a physical condition where uh, due to uh, uh, malfunction in their chromosomes and their hormones, you know, their anatomy isn't quite normal. It's, it's, it's atypical, it's ambiguous. And uh, often they're infertile. In other words, they don't have normal sexual function. Right. Um, and they have been used, the reason that people are confused about it is that they have been used, intersex people have been used uh, rhetorically to try to undermine, to deconstruct mm. the male-female binary. So liberal people will say, the New York Times had an article not too long ago um, by a woman who was arguing that because of intersex, there is really no male and female, there's all, it's just a big spectrum. Mm. 
Um, but what she didn't tell you is that less than 1% of people are actually intersex. Yeah. You know, numerically speaking, it can't be a spectrum right. because there's, there's too few of them. Right. And then secondly, of course, there's only two gametes, the sperm and egg. There's mm-hmm. not a spectrum in between. So if you talk to intersex people, you, they, have a, you know, they have a website, mm. Intersex Association of America or something like that. Yeah. Um, and they'll say, we're not trying to be, we're not claiming to be a third sex. We're not claiming to be a spectrum. We are perfectly happy mm. trying to identify as either male or female, mm. you know, the vast majority of intersex people. And we don't appreciate being used to, to <laughs> make a statement for transgenderism, right? Yeah. In fact, when I was writing Love Thy Body, I was contacted by an intersex woman. Mm. And um, I don't know how she heard that I was writing this book, but I was very glad to have a real live intersex woman to talk to. And she was one, by the way, she was one of the very few where her anatomy was uh, ambiguous enough that they weren't quite sure if she was a boy or a girl. Mm. And so they raised her as a boy. And it wasn't until she was a young adult that she had a chromosome analysis done and found out that she was actually intersex. Mm. And she'd always felt more like a girl. She was very small and delicate. Um, at any rate, so she then, she then resolved the ambiguity in terms of female mm. and um, you know, had hormones and surgery and so on. But at any rate, her point was in contacting me, she used exactly the language you just said. We don't want to be a political football. We intersex people. Mm. We don't like being a political football. Actually, here's how she put it. Um, it hurts to be used as a pawn in someone else's game. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. how she put it. Yeah. And, and that is how they're being used today by a lot of secular people who want to say, you know, there's not just a male-female binary. Sure. So they're using intersex people as a political football. And, and by the way, Christians need to read up on this a little bit too because um, uh, Christian churches don't always know what intersex means. Mm-hmm. And they will, this young woman, her name's Leanne Simon, if you ever want to look her up, um, she's quite open about her intersex mm. status. Um, she has a website. But um, she was kicked out of some Christian churches because mm. they did, they thought she was trans. They mm. thought, okay, you're you know you're lying about your sex. No, 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 I'm intersex. <laughs> mm. Let me explain what that means. Uh, so it's it is important, I think, for Christians to en- educate themselves on what intersex means. It's just it, it's a physical and an ad- uh, difference. You know, sure. how we don't talk about. Um, uh, physical when people have physical problems and you know we just talk about in terms of differences it's just a physical difference Mm -hmm. like any other you know someone someone's born with a weak heart or somebody's born with you know poor eyesight or some you know we're all born with some sort of deformities or you know lack lack of ability and as christian churches we need to welcome and nurture people who have physical uh, abnormalities of 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 any kind. Yeah. So, so it, it is important for Christians to be well-educated. Absolutely. And it, I, I kind of, another question is occurring to me before we get to the last one that I want to finish on. Um, another related, I won't even call it a rabbit trail because it's certainly very important and, and poignant. Let's talk a little bit longer here and, and talk about um, gender dysphoria. And with it, what can we understand on that front? You're talking about be educated, read a little bit more, understand it. Um, you know, one of the things you shared with us this morning that uh, that I found really fascinating is that 
in my reading, I, I certainly learned a lot about the reality of gender dysphoria. It is real. It is a real um, issue that, that some face. And, um, and it's, it's a real battle that people, you know, it's, it's more than just feelings, right? And in the sense of uh, it, can be, it, can, it can be onset very early in life. In fact, you shared, and correct me if I'm wrong, that true gender dysphoria typically happen, happens at a very young age. You're not experiencing it for the first time. Almost, almost certainly, you, almost always, you're not experiencing it for the first time as a teenager. Correct? Is am I right in saying that? Yeah. Well, th- these days, they basically say now there's two forms of gender dysphoria. Right. <laughs> that's that's how they sort of accommodate the fact that we have something new today. Traditionally, you know, historically, gender dysphoria is something that shows up at a very young age. Mm-hmm. That, that's true. And in Love Thy Body, I do tell the story of a young boy who very clearly had gender dysphoria before he was even walking. Mm-hmm. You know, he just, he was gentle and sweet and sensitive and compliant and all the things we associate with girls. Mm. And, you know, people would meet him and say, this is, I'm sorry, this is just not a boy, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, we could talk about his story more, but just to get the big picture, these days, however, the vast majority of cases of gender dysphoria are, um, showing up for the first time in adolescence or teen years. Right. And so, and actually, researchers had to come up with a new name for it because it just was not the way gender dysphoria usually works. And so they call it rapid onset gender dysphoria. Yeah. ROGD. <laughs> yeah, yep. there you go. Yep. <laughs> and, and so it, it is very different. And so we, we, we can't really put the two together. The, the gender dysphoria that starts at a very young age um, so in my book, I, I call him Brandon, which is not his real name, but he, you know, like I said, he had gender it, before he was even walking. It was mm-hmm. very evident. And when he went to preschool, when his mother picked him up every day, he's playing with the little girls, mm-hmm. not the little boys. By elementary school, he was already coming to his parents weeping mm-hmm. and saying, you know, I don't fit in anywhere. Um, Here's how he put it. I, I think the way girls do, I'm interested in, in the things girls are. God should have made me a girl. Mm. And this is a very painful condition, like you were mentioning. It's, it, it, it was a long, difficult battle. By, by teenage years, he was, he was you know, looking up sex reassignment surgery. And, and you ask, well, what did his parents do then? Um, well, first of all, they made sure that he, they knew he, they loved him just the way he was. You know, um, they didn't try to change him. I had a friend in seminary who was a former homosexual who said when he was young, he was interested in art and music. And his dad was baffled mm. and kept trying to toughen him up right. by pushing him into more traditional things like sports. And Brandon's parents did not do that. They said it is perfectly okay to be a sweet, sensitive, gentle, uh, emotional boy. Mm-hmm. It does not mean you're really a girl. Mm. That's so important. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, I mean, they took him to the Myers Briggs test and showed him you can be at either end of the spectrum. You know, the very sensitive. Uh, relational type, you can be a boy or a girl, or you can be the sort of rational take charge, strong mm. type, and you can be a boy or a girl. And, you know, it's okay for girls to be non-gender conforming too. Yeah. Uh, in fact, their, f- their favorite line was, the, his parents, his parents' favorite line was, 
it's not you that's wrong. It's the stereotypes that are wrong. Mm, interesting. <laughs> and it, it um, but I have to tell you, uh, True Gender Dysphoria is very intractable. It really was until early 20s before he finally mm. fully uh, reconciled himself to the fact that he's a boy. And here's how he put it. Um, I talked to him when he was, I think, about 21, and he said to me, I finally realized that surgery would not give me what I want. Mm-hmm. It would not make me a girl, <laughs> which is true. Right. You know, it could change some external features, but it does not make you a girl. And mm. that's when he sort of gave up <laughs> mm. on the idea of transitioning. Um, but, you know, when you ask, so what do we do when, the, when these kids show up in our family or our church right. or our school? Yeah. You know, I do think one of the first, the first step is to make sure that we know we love them just the way they are yeah. and that we're not asking them to be different. Brandon tells me, by the way, he tells me that the worst places for stereotypes are Christian groups. Mm. <laughs> yeah. in, in a sense, Christians have leaned so far against the notion that gender is just a social construct and so on that they almost overemphasize, you know, mm-hmm. oh, you need, to, you need to be a real boy, you need to right. be this and that, or to, you need, if you talk to my female students, you know, because I teach at a Christian university and I get a lot of stories from my female students about the pressure to fit into gender stereotypes and um, so I, I do think that one of the, we talked about it earlier, but one of the things that cr- Christian groups should make a point of is standing against the stereotypes. A lot of kids are being pushed into transitioning because they don't fit the stereotypes. Yeah, yeah totally. I, I mean, I think about, and I've mentioned this in some conversations, is, is one of the ways I've watched the culture shift in general, and, and, and I just, the Christian culture I think is um, uh, done damage there for sure in terms of how we've tried to press into into certain stereotypes. Uh, but I think about growing up. I grew up in the eighties. You know, born in nineteen seventy nine. The I'm a kid of the eighties, and back then and in, into the nineties, uh, totally normal to see a lot of tomboy girls. And I don't, you know, of course I was a kid at the time, but I don't think there was pressure on them back then to say, well, you're a tomboy, go ahead and take it all the way and be a boy, you know, but that does seem to be at play now, right? Of just, Hey, you've got a lot of these qualities that seem to be not feminine in nature. And so, so the pressure becomes take it all the way, right? Is that accurate to say? Oh, very much so. And and if you talk to parents, you'll sometimes hear a lot of stories about the pressure that kids are under, you know, and it used to be from the internet. Now it's from school. Mm. Now I hear more and more sto- stories about kids who, who who get the idea that they might be transgender from school, mm-hmm. and you're right. <laughs> or you talk to you talk to um, older uh, the parents, and the parents will say, "I was a tomboy. <laughs> yeah, I didn't like girly things. Yeah, I'm sure glad I lived, you know, two decades ago. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because yeah. if I were a kid today." I would be under tremendous pressure right. to transition. I, I do hear that a lot from, from women because, like you said, it was more common for girls to be tomboys and that that was totally acceptable. Yeah. But I, I wanted to add one more thing before, before we leave rapid onset gender dysphoria. Sure. Um, and that is the first study ever done of, of these girls, because it is mostly girls, um, the, the numbers are much higher for girls than for boys, mm. now, which, by the way, is also non-traditional. 
uh, back when it was called transsexualism, it was almost purely a male thing. Interesting. And yeah. now it's almost purely a female thing, uh, which is another reason it's people are like, well, what's going on? You know, mm. something is happening here. This, this is not just genetic. You, yeah. It can't be just genetic. It, genetic things don't change this quickly. Mm. But anyways, anyway, there was a study done by a professor at Brown University. Her name is Lisa Littman, L-I-T-T-M-A-N. And it was the first study done of rapid onset gender dysphoria. And what she found out was... 63% mm. of the girls uh, in her study who'd come out as rapid onset gender dysphoria had been previously diagnosed with some sort of personality or um, emotional mm. issue. Mm-hmm. Not, and and I, I emphasize diagnosed because a lot of teenagers have some anxiety or depression. Sure. Anyway, but these were kids where it was severe enough that they'd been taken to a counselor and received a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And before, and by the way, and they were diagnosed before the onset of their gender dysphoria. Right. So, uh, and what I mean by diagnosed, I'm uh, OCD, manic depressive, of um, course, anxiety and depression, p- bipolar and autism, self-harm, you know, these were some of the things they'd been diagnosed with. And where that helps us is when, when these girls show up in our own families or schools or churches, we need to realize they are very fragile yes. kids. Yes. They, um, they, they need us to handle them very gently. And, and because of that fragile nature of, of their psyche and whatnot, they're believing the lie that well, what will give me the the stability that I'm wanting is if I transition. That that'll that'll get me what I'm ultimately longing for. And um, yeah, it's interesting. I, I quoted Littman, uh, same study in my sermon on Sunday, and the part that I quoted was where she said, um, in her research, eighty seven percent of these young girls, um. She was bringing. She was highlighting how a lot of it is social pressure from peers, mm-hmm. right? And eighty-seven percent of those girls who had transitioned become transgender had been in social groups where one of their friends had transitioned, uh, had been on as a part of online groups and and kind of niche websites where it was being talked about and, and pushed very heavily. It, and so it, it was. Her point was simply: um, uh, this was a very uh, un, unacceptable result of a research from the culture's worldview, because the culture wants you to believe, the secular culture wants you to believe that this is totally coming from within. This is an intrinsic issue, and the research actually showed the opposite: that it, yeah. it's extrinsic. It's extrinsic in terms of how often. What's the catalyst behind the transition? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the term is social contagion. You mm. know, it, it's like when you know when there's a, a one kid commits suicide and there's a bunch of copycat suicides. Because mm. um, I didn't, you sh- I didn't know what social contagion meant, but that's right. what it means. Sure. Um, so there's a lot of social contagion happening, and the Lisa Littman um, uh, study 
she found the vast majority, uh, the whole, f- whole friend groups were coming out at the same time yeah. as transgender. It's like, oh, yeah, right. You mm. know, the whole friend group is, is finding their true authentic self all at the same time. Right. You know, that, that alone is enough to make it somewhat suspect. Mm. You know, yeah. know this, it's no, no, natural, true natural change doesn't happen with your whole friend, your whole friend group at the same time. Mm. So I thought that was an, an interesting uh, part of her research too, and yeah, she, uh, by the way, you are right. She, she, her her findings were not welcome mm. in secular academia. She was viciously attacked. They tried mm. to get the 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 um, journal that had published it. They tried to get it you know, them to retract it, yeah. and they so they they retracted it temporarily to to say, okay, we'll we'll reanalyze. We'll take a look at it. And then they had to republish it because, you know, it was... It was accurate. It was accurate. Yeah. Well, let's, let's end with, with um, you know, as a pastor, I always come back to, you know, the longing of the heart. What is it that... Uh, you know, I've, I have three teenagers in my home right now. Um, one 10-year-old, soon-to-be teenager. Because she's the youngest, she's 10 going on 15. <laughs> yeah. um, but... Um, it's near and dear to my heart in terms of what our teenagers are facing today. And uh, what is it that, that ultimately, what's the longing of the heart that's at play here? And how can we love, uh, how can we love this generation well and, and genuinely have compassion on them um, without affirming, right? And so, 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 so the secular worldview would say, right now what's being emphasized is, uh, if you love me, you will affirm me. That's those; those are equal in the eyes of of the secular worldview. Whereas the biblical worldview says, "Well, love doesn't always equal affirmation. Love actually points us in a direction that's going to give us a greater experience of what is true love, which is often, um, you know, God shaping us. Well, what it always is biblically is is God shaping us more and more into His image." And us experiencing the love that we were created for that can only be found in him. And, uh, but I'd love thoughts from you of just in your own experience, how do you, how do you show compassion and love to people who are really struggling with this, um, without affirming them, right? In the sense of, hey, we're, I'm great with what the decisions that you're making, uh, but, but I love you, you know? I would like to help them redefine what we mean by affirm because the Christian ethic does affirm the value and dignity of their body and their biological yeah. sex. Um, the My book, Love Their Body, you know, it's not just moral arguments. It's full of stories, mm. you know, lots of anecdotes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and let me just give you two from, homose- two from homosexuality, the chapter mm. on homosexuality. So f- the first one was a young woman who lived as a lesbian for many years. Um, and today is married and has two kids. And she said, and here's here's her quote. I I love her quote. She said, I came to trust that God had made me female for a reason. Mm. And I wanted to honor my body by living in accord with the creator's design. Mm. Yep. And that, we almost have to memorize some of these phrases to get ourselves used to using them. Honor my body by living in accord with the creator's design. If we can, I mean, that's affirming in the sense of it's affirming their true worth and dignity. 
And the second, the second example, um, again, is a, a young man who was homos- grew up homosexual, uh, as he put it, exclusively attracted to other men. And what's interesting about his story is he grew up in a, a quote, gay-affirming family mm. and attended a gay-affirming church. So he didn't think there was anything wrong with homosexuality as a Christian. Uh, and you say, well, then why'd he change? Oh, by the way, he, he did change. Today he's married and has three kids. Mm. And by the way, he's also a Christian ethics professor <laughs> in, uh, in London. Um, but he says, what changed me was not shame or guilt. Yeah. What changed me was reading about the body. He was my first example, by the way, that I found that, that uh, affirmed my thesis of my book, which is, you know, the answer to things like homosexuality is love your body. Because his story was, how did I change? I came to affirm my body. I said, I, you know, I wasn't trying to change my feelings because that, that rarely works. But I came to accept what I already had, mm. which was a male body as a good gift from God. Mm. Uh, this, that's a direct quote. And then eventually my feelings started to follow suit. So again, his point was, he, he wasn't acting out of shame or guilt or self-loathing. You know, homosexual activists will say, if you change, it means you're acting out of self-loathing. He said, no, I came to accept my body as a good gift from God. In other words, in other words we're back to the worldview issue. The, 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 at the heart of the debate is the question, are we the products of blind, material, mindless forces? Or are we the creation of a loving God who created this universe and it therefore basically... Good, you know, even the even the fall doesn't negate that. I sometimes get students who say, "Yeah, yeah, okay, we're made in God's image," but the fall negated right, it all, right? right? Yeah. No, no, no. The fall is more like, if you want to think of an analogy, it's more like a, a beautiful masterpiece, artistic masterpiece, you know. And a child comes with a magic marker and scribbles on it. Mm-hmm. You know, you can still see the Mona Lisa <laughs> or whatever. You can still see the beauty shining through. And that's, that's right. m- the message we have to have for the, our, our world today is the beauty of who God created you is still shining through. And that's what we're embracing. So I would like to change the definition of the world, word affirm because that is affirming. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> and, and we have the ability to... Uh, approach things with such a better positive story of affirmation than what the world can give to affirm uh sure yeah we're marred image bearers but we're still image bearers and we still in our bodies image the one who is so good and and that's the uh where we've been for those that may have been listening to the series that we've been preaching so far that's really the bedrock of where we're coming from is is there is there a good God who can be trusted? And if the answer is yes, then uh, it naturally plays to, therefore, the second part of that, which is, well, if he's the designer God, the creator God, and he can be trusted and he is good, then his design can be trusted and is good. And so what's actually best for me is to not act as Adam and Eve did, of course, we have their sin nature. We have their residue in us, where we think that we're that our design and what what we want life to be, and how we want to make our bodies and whatnot. That's what's best. No, but to actually align to the design of the good, trustworthy God, and and know that we are more loved and affirmed in Him than we ever will be in anything this world can give us. 
In my book, Love Thy Body, I have lots of anecdotes and a lot of pseudonyms. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're pseudonyms because they're people I know, right? Um, people in my family, you know, people close to me who aren't necessarily ready to tell a story yet. But one of them I call Rebecca. Um, and so she, she uh, wrestled with same-sex attraction for many years, even after she was married. Mm, yeah. You know, to, Sure. It doesn't necessarily go away immediately. Yep. Yep. And so she eventually talked to her husband about it. And, and here's how he put it. You know, because God made you female, you can be confident that no matter what your feelings are right now, you will be more fulfilled with a man. Hmm. And of course, you know, it goes both ways. He said, you know, I'm a man, so whatever my feelings might be, sure. I can be confident that I will be more fulfilled with a woman. And that was a turning point. For her. Mm. Now it took another four years or so. Yeah. You know, to, it's not overnight. Sure. It's not overnight. But that was like, you know, like that made sense. Like mm. something just clicked in her brain. Like, of course, if God made you. And he made us holistic beings, right? Yeah. And made you female, yeah. you know, biologically, by right. your body. No, You know, your feelings may be misleading right now. You know, it, you can be confident mm. that God will. Uh, that you will be more fulfilled. Or as one of my students, this is a student of mine, um, who, who uh, went off to college and became, she was from a small town. She never thought same-sex attraction would be a temptation for her. Mm. You know, just a very small conservative family in town and homeschooled. And, and then she went to college and she met women who were lesbians. And she was completely drawn in. Mm. Uh, sometimes, you know, a concrete... Opportunity. It's like, you know, this is what yeah. sin does to us, right? Sure. Sometimes we have no temptation unless there's a concrete opportunity, and suddenly we find it is a temptation. So she identified as lesbian for several years, and then um, by the time I met her, she became one of my students. She had gone back to, an, um, you know, a heterosexual identity, and she, and she said the same word that you just used. She said, I came to trust mm. that God's design was better for me. That, that I should trust that if God had made me this way, this is how I would ultimately be happiest. It would ultimately be best for me. So she came to trust God's design. Mm. By That's the way, good. last time I met her, she was engaged. So That's great. <laughs> to a guy. Well, have, and, by the way, you have to say that now. To a guy. That's, <laughs> to a there guy. you go. And, um, you know, I'll just mention this. Um, we're recording this before our sermon coming up where we'll preach on singleness and that there is a call to singleness for many people as well, that if we submit to God's design, well, uh, it may not always mean that, uh, his design for you from a sexuality standpoint is going to always lead to, to marriage. It may very well be singleness. And I know there's many who are listening who, um, uh, are, are wrestling with that as well. So we'll save that for the next time. Um, Although I do deal with it in Lovely Body. I'm just yeah, par- yeah, yeah. parenthetically, Please, yeah. since you mentioned it. Um, because in previous ages, there was not as much emphasis on people getting married. Mm. Um, look at the New Testament. Lazarus lived with his, Lazarus was not married, lived with his two sisters who were yeah. not married. And um, <laughs> I mentioned that because I had an uncle uh, excuse me, I think it was a great uncle. It's my grandfather's brother. Yeah, mm-hmm. so great uncle. A great uncle who is 
he lived with his two sisters. <laughs> he he was unmarried, and he yeah. lived with his two unmarried sisters, Same just like situation. Lazarus. Yeah, and and that was not considered a weird thing back then. That was much. It was more common. We don't realize, you know, that cultural change. You know, sometimes you know, we're in the middle of it. You know, like the fish doesn't understand what water is, but. In earlier ages, there was not as much emphasis mm. on everyone having to be married. Right. And part of it was because you could be part of a household, even if you were not married. Mm. Um, mm. You know, what happens is single people are lonely, right? So that makes sense. But in previous days, if you could be part of a household, we had some Egyptian neighbors. They moved in. They were, asy- they were very careful to say they were not refugees. They were asylees, which mm. means they had religious asylum. They mm. were Christians, and mm. they moved in across the street from us. And, and they had an, uh, a maiden aunt. That's, why that's kind of old-fashioned language. But, you know, an unmarried aunt was living with a family. And that was no big deal. That was common. So other cultures still have the notion that you can be single. And it, if, you're part of a fam- if you're part of a household so right. that you're not alone, right. Right. it's much more common in those cultures for people to feel fine being single because of, you know, they they have close knit family relationships, yeah. even without being married. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I would encourage you greatly that if you're listening or watching, that you would get a copy of "Love Thy Body" by Nancy Piercy, um, and so much of what we've even discussed in this podcast today, uh, she goes into great detail. And as she's mentioned, certainly there's a lot of of um, data and and moralistic argument in there that is so helpful, but a lot of stories, a lot of real life stories that help us uh, kind of understand, hey, this isn't just something philosophical to talk about. This is real life. And um, God has a lot to say about it and how he has made us and designed us for his glory. So thank you for joining me again, Uh, Nancy. We are so grateful for you and for your insight and expertise in this area. And um, we'll look forward to just remaining in touch with you, hopefully, in the years to come. So join us next time. We'll continue this conversation on sexuality. We'll be joined by a friend of mine, Scott Sauls, who's also a pastor in Nashville. He'll have some great insight. You'll want to tune into that. Until then, check out some of our other resources, some of the other podcasts that we've done in the past with Digging Deeper. And uh, we'll look forward to having you next time. Mm-hmm.